Timothy Snyder had a really interesting article a few weeks before all of this happened saying that the moment when open politics starts in an autocratic society or in an autocratic system, that's the start of the end, when government officials begin to beef with each other openly and that politics starts to take hold. That's a signal of maybe not the imminent collapse of an autocratic system, but a very dangerous moment for the dictator in charge. Because in a functioning dictatorship, as it were, an appropriately functioning dictatorship, there can't be politics. There can't be some mercenary group head demanding publicly to have the Minister of Defense removed from power. That sort of thing can't happen in a stable dictatorship. And that's where we were led over the last weekend and over the last week. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. My occasional spiel today is, perhaps unusually, about a piece of very good news. The Supreme Court was asked to rule in a complicated case about a North Carolina statue, but put to the test a really threatening idea about American democracy what some people have called the independent state legislature doctrine. According to this idea, the administration of federal elections would be so fully in the control and the gift of individual states that the Supreme Court and federal institutions would have minimal standing to redress very clear and blatant abuses of the law. An endorsement of this theory by the Supreme Court would have opened the path for governors in 2024, 2028, saying they disagree with other bodies within their state about who the rightful winner of the election is, and they're simply going to send a slate of electors that they prefer to the Electoral College. They would effectively have handed some of these political figures the power to overturn the outcome of free and fair elections. Well, this week, the Supreme Court roundly rejected that theory in its ruling on Moore v. Harper. This puts to an end one of the most dangerous ways by which the elections in 2024-2028 could have been stolen, and could have led to significant civic strife because of disagreement between different institutions about who the rightful winner of a presidential election was. I think as the Supreme Court is about to, or perhaps by the time you're listening to this already has, handed down other controversial opinions, this is also a good reminder to make a distinction in our understanding of the current Supreme Court. It is uh, certainly a conservative court that is willing to significantly change the legal status quo on issues about which both progressives and conservatives have very strong views. It is willing to be revisionary in a very significant way, as we've seen with its ruling on abortion last year. But it is so far a court which clearly stands for democratic institutions and the rule of law. It has consistently rejected lawsuits by Donald Trump about the 2020 election, and it has now rejected one of the most dangerous legal theories that would have empowered future 
such efforts. There was a six to three majority in this case. The six justices that rejected the theory wholesale include conservative leading judges who were appointed by Republican presidents, including John Roberts, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. And it's also worth noting, uh, here we're getting into intricacies, that the three people who dissented from this ruling did not embrace at least a strong version of the independent legislature theory either. However, one feels about this court, I'm reassured that when it comes to the defense of the most basic democratic institutions in this country, the court has been much more principled and much better than the public debate at times implies. My guest today is Tim Mack. Tim has been with NPR, with National Public Radio, in a variety of roles, including as the Washington investigative correspondent. And he recently left the organization to found a new publication called Counteroffensive, which you can read at counteroffensive.news. We talked today about Tim's impressions of Ukraine having spent much of the last years in the country. We discuss Ukraine's spring offensive and its prospects for success. We talk about what it would take for this war to end and whether there are any reasons to resist pessimism about how long that will take. We talk about what it is like to try and portray the stories of people living through this terrible war in a way that those of us who are lucky enough not to have had that kind of experience can actually relate to. And finally, we try to think through what Ukraine's future after the war might possibly look like. To Mac, welcome back. Thank you so much. So to explain to listeners, we recorded this conversation about 10 days before you're listening to it, if you're listening to it on the day that it's being released. And then just as we were about to publish it, a lot of things happened. So we decided to do a little 15-minute update at the top of the conversation, and then you'll listen to all the interesting, not-so-newsy, deeper things that we talked about 10 days ago. That's why I said welcome back to Tim. So, Tim, the first obvious question, you are more focused on Ukraine than you are in Russia but what just happened in Russia with this apparent coup attempt? And how do you think that's going to influence the war? What impact is that going to have on Ukraine? Well, you know, even as someone who watches this pretty closely, I'm dumbfounded by the whole situation. The idea that the head of the Wagner mercenary group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, would launch a armed insurgency and then drive towards Moscow that wasn't really on my bingo card or on like, anyone's bingo card in the immediate future, right? That that was a really unexpected development. But what it did was it laid bare just the amount of chaos there is inside the Russian political system at the moment and how unstable a dictatorship is when politics begins to take hold. You know, Timothy Snyder had a really interesting article a few weeks before all of this happened saying that the moment when open politics starts in an autocratic society or in an autocratic system, that's the start of the end when government officials begin to beef with each other openly and that politics starts to take hold. 
that's a signal of maybe not the imminent collapse of an autocratic system, but a very dangerous moment for the dictator in charge. Because in a functioning dictatorship, as it were, an appropriately functioning dictatorship, there can't be politics. There can't be some mercenary group head demanding publicly to have the minister of defense removed from power. That sort of thing can't happen in a stable dictatorship. And that's where we were led over the last weekend and over the last week. What everybody has been saying in the last few days, I just heard Secretary of State Anthony Blinken say this live at the Council on Foreign Relations about an hour before we were recording, is that, you know, at the beginning of this war, we thought we were a couple of days, perhaps a couple of hours from the fall of Kiev. The question was whether Russian troops were going to be conquering the Ukrainian capital. We now had this extraordinary spectacle of rebel troops being within 100 or so miles of Moscow. Are Ukrainians taking optimism from this? Or are they concerned that Putin is now going to be under even greater pressure to demonstrate his resolve, that perhaps he will stoop to even lower means of waging this battle? How do you think this might impact the actual conduct of the war and the prospects for Ukraine's military success? Yeah, well, I'll say that there were a lot of memes being posted by Ukrainians online as this was all developing on a frantic Saturday. And I think that Ukrainians in general are very happy to see a little bit of instability in a country. And that instability is caused in no small part by Putin and the Russian government's conduct during this war. There's a lot of dissent within Russia, hidden dissent largely, but a lot of unhappiness about the number of Russian lives lost, for example. And that's something you can't hide in small communities where people come back in body bags or don't come back at all. I spoke to an advisor to the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, Yuri Sack, and to paraphrase him, he said that, you know, this is a situation where terrorists are killing terrorists or terrorists are fighting terrorists. And the net gain here is for Ukraine. There's no downside, at least the immediate term, for that to happen. And you know, when you talk to Ukrainians, a lot of them think that a lot of progress needs to be made on the battlefield, but that ultimately, as long as Putin remains in power, and as long as Russia remains an imperial dictatorial state, they won't be safe no matter what kind of agreement or what kind of battlefield victories they achieve. And that the ultimate goal to end hostilities does need to involve the collapse of the Russian state itself. Now, in terms of your question about the battlefield, the Ukrainian military has stated that they're taking advantage of the chaos within the Russian domestic political system and that they've been making gains, for example, in and around Bakhmut as a result of the confusion among Russian military forces over the last few days. So this leads me naturally into really the last question I have for you in this update, which is, that one segment of a conversation we had a week ago was about Ukraine's spring offensive and whether it's delayed onset, whether it's so far modest successes are a reason for pessimism about the prospects of success. Have these gains over the course of the last week significantly changed the overall picture that you drew? Or do you think that broadly speaking, your assessment remains what it was a week ago? I think it broadly remains the same. You know, political instability, though, can have impacts in ways that bullets and high Mars rockets can't. 
right? If you're a Russian soldier in the trenches near the front lines in one of these defensive positions waiting for the Ukrainians to attack, and you're seeing all of this chaos back at home, you might well wonder, well, what am I doing out here when our government doesn't have the general competence to take care of pretty simple issues like not allowing a rebellion to occur? So, you know, in terms of whether the gains in the past few days have dramatically changed the calculations on the battlefield, I don't think so. But the will to fight is an extremely, extremely powerful and very difficult to quantify element of any war, of any battle. The CIA and the DIA are really good at counting troops and counting tanks and counting guns. It's much harder to determine whether people will stand and fight and what morale is like on the battlefield. You can't say that the morale this week is the same as the morale last week. You know, the CIA and the DIA, for example, made mistakes in terms of assessing the will to fight in Afghanistan and how quickly Kabul would fall. And they also made a misjudgment on how quickly they expected Kyiv to fall. That's because it's so difficult to determine this will to fight factor, this morale factor, because it's not as easily quantifiable. That said, even though it's not easily quantifiable, I think it's pretty fair to say that there's a lot of confusion and turmoil inside Russia right now, and that that's to Ukraine's benefit in the short term. Yeah, one of the things that we talked about was the sort of seeming stasis of the front, which is very different from what it felt like 15 months ago. But the sort of different kinds of scenarios in which there might be sudden movements or sudden collapse, as has happened in the past, as has happened in World War One and other junctures. And I guess it seems to me that the political instability in Russia and the events of the last weeks may turn out not to have a long-lasting effect. It may turn out to be a footnote in this terrible war. But they at least sort of increase the likelihood that there is one of those outlier events that lead to a collapse of the Russian lines. I don't know that sort of the point estimate, the expected outcome has shifted that much, but perhaps the likelihood of big enough demoralization or of some chain of political events leading to a collapse of the Russian troops seems somewhat higher now than it did a week ago. Do you think that's fair? I think that's fair. I mean, it's hard not to think that these Russian troops are not more demoralized today than they were last week. There's a lot of support among the Russian rank and file for the Wagner group which are seen as kind of effective shock troops. And, you know, every soldier always has some skepticism about his or her leadership. I'm sure that's being expressed in conversation between Russian troops now because of how chaotic things have been way further back from the front lines. Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to come back on the podcast, a record return within about a week. I appreciate it, especially since you're traveling today and to everybody else. This was just a little preview of the really interesting conversation we had a week ago, which you can listen to right after this. Tim Mack, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You know, we've been waiting for the start of the spring offensive for a long time. And it is very important, both in military terms, as one of the big opportunities Ukraine might have to reconquer some of the territory that was taken by Russia in this brutal invasion. And in political terms, uh, sustain support for Ukraine and possibly create the perspective 
for some kind of end to the war on fair terms. I know it's relatively early in the offensive, but how is it going so far? Do you have an assessment on how it's proceeding? Well, you said the spring offensive, but the spring counteroffensive is likely to become the summer counteroffensive and then drag on to the fall as the fall counteroffensive. You know, I mean, it's obvious in the first couple weeks of fighting so far that it's going to be a long and difficult path for the Ukrainians. Now, there are a number of observations. Firstly, is that Ukrainians are making progress on a number of three or four fronts. One in the south, one kind of you could call is the central axis, and one is the, the Bakhmut axis. And they're making slow progress, measured in meters, not in kilometers. And if anyone was hoping that Russian lines would immediately collapse, like in the areas around Kharkiv last year, it's been become very clear that the Russian lines are dug in, and that's going to take quite a lot of time and effort and sacrifice on the part of the Ukrainians to achieve their longer-term goals, which are obviously to put Russia in a best strategic position and ultimately push them out of Ukrainian territory. So far, what we've seen is a handful of villages that have been retaken by Ukrainian forces, but just devastating fighting along heavily mined areas with soldiers on both sides receiving pretty high levels of casualties. In fact, the Institute for the Study of War said recently that Ukraine is likely to take a strategic pause and kind of decide how to proceed given the difficulties of the first couple of weeks. So basically, it sounds like this is bad news. The spring offensive ended up starting much later than we anticipated. I'd love to understand the reasons for why that is. I mean, we're recording this on June the 20th. So technically the last day of a spring offensive. And by the time that people listen to this, spring is technically over. And then it sounds like even once the offensive actually started, progress was slower than at least some people hoped. Does this mean that we have to reevaluate some of the assumptions about the morale and the strength of the Russian army? Is it just in the nature of what's effectively now a form of trench warfare that, you know, defensive lines are very strong and you get the kind of meat grinder attempts to move lines that we might associate with World War One. You know, what is the explanation for why some of these hopes seem to be being dashed at the moment? I think you have to understand it, and then you alluded to this a little bit, that the idea of a spring counteroffensive in particular is driven by political demands, by the wishes of allies who have put a lot of money and aid and military equipment and training and diplomatic support into Ukraine to say, hey, show us something, show us some progress. And that's primarily a political pressure and not a military or strategic one, that there was a real vibrant and is a real vibrant debate even within the Ukraine's own military community as to whether to wait or to go. And you can see some of that diplomatic pressure taking the form of trying to show some evidence of advances and progress ahead of a NATO summit next month to show, hey, thank you, NATO, for your support. Not only should Ukraine be given a pathway into NATO, but look at what we've done so far with all the support you've provided us. So a, lo a lot of this on the timing of the counteroffensive has been based on this political pressure that has arisen and these expectations that have arisen from the West and other Ukrainian allies. So you're effectively suggesting that some of the expectations and the success of a spring offensive 
we're never realistic, but we're always driven by these kind of political demands. I mean, one of the things that it strikes me, I'm not an expert in Ukraine, and I'm certainly not an expert in military campaigns, is how often the war has shifted over the course of its first year, and perhaps particularly over the course of the first eight or nine months. I mean, the first day of a war, most military experts were expecting tanks to roll down the streets of Kiev imminently. It nearly felt like, you know, cable channels were just waiting for those images to quote-unquote finally appear on the TV screens because, of course, they would make for good ratings. Then there was a huge surprise in how successful Ukraine was in resisting the attack and then pushing it back to some extent. But then there was a few more shifts where, you know, for a while people started to think Russia is really on the defensive and the Russian army might be about to collapse. That didn't happen. And then the Russians seemed to be on the offensive again. But again, they didn't get as far as they might. Do you expect those kind of surprises to keep happening? Or was that in part caused by an early phase of a war where defensive positions had not been dug and reinforced to the extent that they have been now, such that the sort of quite volatile war with lots of opportunities for experts to get things wrong uh, might now be giving away to a much more grinding, stable war in which you know, it might move a few meters this way and a few meters that way, but effectively we can expect this grinding process to go on for the next little bit. Or to put this question another way, if there isn't some form of armistice or some form of negotiated settlement, what are the realistic scenarios for how this war might end? You talk to Ukrainians and they're not remotely close to some sort of diplomatic arrangement. The way I describe it is that there have been two phases of the war in terms of public opinion and the interest in a diplomatic solution to the war. There's the pre-Bucha phase and there's the post-Bucha phase. You know, I was in Kyiv when the invasion started and I remember talking to people hoping that it would be over in, you know, three weeks, four weeks, two months, three months. But public opinion dramatically changed and hearts really hardened after it became clear that Russia had committed these terrible atrocities just outside of Kyiv. And it wasn't merely that they had killed unarmed civilians or looted areas as they were leaving that area around Kyiv, but it's that I think a lot of Ukrainians had visited those places, had seen the apartments where these atrocities happened and thought, well, my apartment looks quite a lot like that. That family looks a lot like my family. And after that moment, I think there really was no prospect for any sort of negotiated peace in the medium term. I, I spoke to one woman, and that conversation will always stick with me. We, we spoke right after the atrocities in Bucha were revealed. And she works in the medical field. She's a former doctor. She is as empathetic as one can get. She told me, I'm a Christian. I know that I'm taught to love everyone, but I can't forget this. She described this hatred, this burning inside her that really hardened her towards any sort of sympathy or interest in talking to the Russian forces that had invaded her country. And I think that probably represents the vast majority of public opinion in Ukraine right now. So how does this end? If that's the public opinion, if that's the median person in Ukraine, then it doesn't end. That the only way it ends is on the battlefield. I mean, you look at where the Ukrainian diplomatic position and the Russian diplomatic position is, and it could, I mean, it could not be further apart, right? The plans that each side has proposed is basically the other side must give up. 
And that's not really a recipe for a diplomatic agreement. In terms of, you know, where things are on the battlefield, the expectations have been set, as you wisely point out, by these dramatic movements in terms of control of territory in the first year of the war. And what's obvious is that it's easier to be on the defensive than it is to be on the offensive. American military doctrine is clear about how you need to have a multiple to attack than to defend. And we've spoken about this counteroffensive for months and months and months and months. And so what have the Russians been able to do? They've been able to heavily mine likely approaches towards their territory and create really very solid defensive structures. One advantage they have is that they still have superiority in the sky. They don't have total control of the skies, but they're able to operate with relative impunity due to Ukraine's lack of kind of tactical air defense that supports their troops. Ukraine has made a strategic decision to locate its air defense in the cities to protect civilians. And so that leaves their troops more vulnerable on the move. And so, yes, it will be a long and grinding process. Now, the big issue is the issue of morale, right? Can we see a collapse in the Russian lines due to inexperienced soldiers, soldiers who don't have a lot of training and don't have a lot of will to be there. They've been, for example, conscripted or they're not particularly motivated to be in a foreign country fighting. And as the war goes on, you can imagine a scenario where there is a collapse in Russian lines. We're not there yet, obviously, but the counteroffensive is just starting. And I wouldn't try to draw too many conclusions from a couple weeks of fighting. So you're not a military historian, but what are the precedents for how those kind of defensive lines fail? My understanding is that at the end of World War I, it was actually a German breakthrough through the Allied defensive lines, which the Allies were extremely worried about, but which then spent itself. The Germans were not able, as I understand this, and I may be getting the details wrong, to really establish dominance and sustain themselves in the breach and then they had overextended themselves and were suddenly very vulnerable to counterattack. So, uh, you know, if we're thinking of World War One and the kind of trench warfare of that moment as one precedent, this is one kind of way in which this kind of defensive war of attrition could end. But other, other kinds of models, I mean, you know, if we're assuming that we're just far too far away from a negotiated settlement because of Ukrainians' understandable unwillingness to give up a substantial percentage of the territory and Russians' unwillingness to give up on the dream of conquering by force a substantial part of Ukrainian territory. If what we're left with is this long drawn out military solutions, what are some of the kind of scenarios for that? I mean, what would it look like for Ukraine or for Russia to win the kind of decisive victory on the battlefield that would then cast an end to the war? I'm not sure World War One is a great analog for this, just because the real focus nowadays is combined arms warfare, right? Being able to conduct this symphony of different kinds of components of war, from artillery and mortars to infantry, to the use of drones for spotting and for offensive operations, using tanks and using what air assets they have as well. And so combining all of those together, you can both create opportunities and exploit opportunities much faster than in a world war one type situation where it resembles world war one i think is sitting in a trench and getting hammered by artillery and 
I think where it resembles World War One is a very slow grinding movement. But the war is obviously a very different situation with a very different kind of warfare and new vulnerabilities to include things like electronic warfare. The Russians have proven relatively effective in jamming or obscuring GPS signals and communications on the front lines, which have, according to the Institute for the Study of War, which have degraded in some ways Ukrainian effectiveness in the counteroffensive. But still, the Ukrainians are making progress. We're not talking about a standstill here. I think we need to give it a little bit more time before saying that this is a kind of frozen conflict where people are just being thrown into the meat grinder. We're just a couple weeks in, and the Ukrainians have made some, although limited, some progress. Well, one of the concerning things is that it's sort of hard to imagine a real end of a conflict even after this terrible phase of the fighting ends, which is to say that the best case scenario is a resounding Ukrainian victory, is Ukrainians being able, succeeding in expelling Russian troops from their territory. But it would still be very imaginable that even in that kind of scenario, Russia would reform and recoalesce its troops and it could wait until there's a military or political opening and try again to invade Ukraine, even some years after some kind of official defeat. On the other hand, in the horror scenario in which Russia actually manages to conquer large stretches of Ukraine, even perhaps Kiev, I think some of the things you've been saying in this conversation about the deep way in which the atrocities of this war have formed Ukraine's national consciousness make it very hard to envisage what that would look like. I mean, that would probably be a extremely bloody occupation with an ongoing resistance and guerrilla movement, that would be very, very bloody as well. So I guess, you know, I'm pessimistic about when the straightforward military phase of this war might end. But the more I think about it, the more pessimistic I am also that even after that, the region will come to any kind of meaningful peace. Do you share that pessimism or am I talking myself into too much of a... You might be talking yourself into a little bit of long-term pessimism when there's so much to determine in the short term, right? You know, when you talk to Ukrainians, they'll say that this is not a war where victory can come merely from the battlefield. That in the immediate term, that's where the action is. But that you're right. I mean, I, I think most Ukrainians think that a diplomatic solution is foolish for the reason you stated, that any diplomatic solution that involves an armistice would merely be an opportunity for Russia to regroup, retrain, replenish their weaponry, and do this again in some period of time. And so what am I hearing from Ukrainians about this? That this is part of a longer-term project to weaken the Russian state and remove the peril of Russian imperialism from becoming a problem in the long term. Ukrainians think that there are a number of levels on which this war is being fought, obviously the battlefield being one of them, but another one being empowering minorities in Russia to revolt and to create additional political instability within Russia. That being a major strategic goal of the Ukrainian government, publicly stated goal of the Ukrainian government, which would reduce Russia's ability in the long term to act as a threat towards Ukraine. So there's the battlefield component, there's kind of the information and political stability component, but there's also kind of a long-term feeling in Ukraine that there's a number of reasons why this war is being fought. One is the obvious one, which is that Russia invaded the country, but another one is that 
people are fighting for a different kind of future for Ukraine, one in which the government is less corrupt, more free, more democratic, more closely aligned with the EU, and more progressive in general. And when I talk to people, that seems to be a major component of why they're participating in helping with the military operations or why they're trying to push Ukraine towards victory. That's a major motivating force. So one of the things that you've mentioned repeatedly in this conversation is now when you talk to Ukrainian people, and that's because you are, in fact, in the country and are trying to do a different kind of journalism in which you really talk to a lot of people and tell stories about the war. You know, one of the things I'm struck by is that at the beginning of the Ukraine war, it did feel like we were talking about little else. And there was even some critical voices which were saying, you know, you didn't care about Syria, you didn't care about these other places. Why are you all caring so much about Ukraine? My response at the time was that, sadly, you know, a year to in, we might care quite a lot less about Ukraine. The war might wander from the front pages of newspapers to page five and page 10, page 15, because the day-to-day grind of war is difficult to write about. And so I think certainly support for Ukraine from the United States and countries in Western Europe continues to be strong and people continue to feel for the fate of people there quite strongly. The extent to which it is part of a daily conversation, even part of a daily news cycle, is much less than it was. And you can see echoes of a way in which the civil war in Syria slowly left the headlines, slowly left public consciousness. Sort of what does it look like to try and tell the stories of a war in a way that people can try and relate to even for we live under such different circumstances? And how can we make sure that we appreciate even a sliver of a horror of war rather than assimilating news about Ukraine to, you know, the front line moved 10 meters in this direction and 50 meters in that direction. And even in its daily horror, it kind of just feels like yet another installment of more of the same. So just last month, I launched a publication to address this very issue. There's this problem which I identify, which some people have called Ukraine fatigue, right? That folks are not so interested in hearing the technical details of, oh, the front lines moved from this village that you've never heard of to another village you've never heard of, or that 12 people were killed in a city in the east and three people were wounded. So we launched counteroffensive.news to try to do compelling human interest journalism that motivates people to care about the humans in the war. We look at the news through the lens of a single person who's affected by the news. And we're hoping that that breaks through in the sense that people are much more interested if they can empathize with something in a story, that people are much more interested in reading stories about things where they can see themselves. So let me give you an example. You know, we have been writing, for example, about the strikes in Kiev. But unlike other news outlets who might say, oh, well, at three o'clock in the morning, 12 ballistic missiles were shot down over the skies of Kiev, what we did instead was we zoomed in on a single individual. One of the ballistic missiles was shot down over the Kiev Zoo, and the shrapnel tore through a tree right in the middle of the zoo, and we found a sketch artist there named Georgie. And we tried to look at the attacks overnight through his experience. We looked at how he heard the explosions at three o'clock in the morning from his home on the left bank and came to work the next day and sat on a bench to work 
as an artist, you know, getting paid for sketches for people who visited the zoo. And we talk not only about his experience of the, the overnight strikes, but his life as an artist during the war, how difficult it has been to make a living, how difficult it has been to find himself in a position where he's forced to draw sketches at a zoo to make ends meet. And his shame, for example, in having to do this sort of work when he, he believes that he has a much higher level of education in art. And we kind of weave that whole story together in a way that we hope is more interesting for the public, that you can relate, if you're interested in art, for example, that you could relate to that sort of thing. And then in the course of reading about a story, you learn the news, you learn about the strikes that happen overnight, almost incidentally, to the human narrative that we're trying to bring to it. So over the course of the last month and a half, what we've done is we've profiled people like Ukrainian fishermen along the Dnipro River who are enduring this terrible ecological catastrophe due to the blowing of the Kokoka Dam. We've talked to a U.S. fighter who's fighting for Ukraine, and we try to give a sort of immersive experience of what it was like fighting in Bakhmut in the last days before that eastern Ukrainian city fell. We profiled uh, Ukrainian female partisans who are training for action behind enemy lines and, and how ca they can continue to resist in areas of Russian occupation. And the way we cover this ongoing counteroffensive, for example, is not just by talking about the movement of military troops, but we profiled a 76-year-old woman who once lived in Orihi, which is one of the towns that is a focal point now of the counteroffensive, and how she was forced out of her town due to constant shelling, but still sneaks back into the city despite extreme personal danger to herself because she loves the cats and dogs that are living there with no one to feed them. And so she sneaks back into the city to feed the neighborhood cats and dogs. That's the sort of personal, narrative-driven, intimate reporting that we've been doing that we think will cut through, that brings you a little closer, immerses you a little bit more in the facts. I think of these stories as stories that I hope people would want to read regardless of whether or not they were in Ukraine, but they happen to be in Ukraine, and that gives it a little edge, and that people can maybe see themselves in some of these stories, that maybe you too love cats and dogs and would take deep personal risk to do it. Or you also can see yourself in a fisherman that's fishing along the Dnipro River as the water recedes and you realize, gosh, I'm not going to be able to do this thing that I've been doing my entire life and what a travesty that would be. These are the kinds of stories that we're trying to put out there to combat the so-called Ukraine fatigue. It strikes me that there can be a kind of catch-22 in portraying countries at war where the natural thing to do is to write about the horror of war, the deep suffering of war, the person who has lost their family or who's severely injured, people who die. But that can make it very hard for people to fully relate because for people who frankly have not experienced that kind of tragedy, it feels terrible and moving, but it also feels very abstract and far away. It's hard to completely inhabit that. But then you also see that when journalists try to go in the other direction or when you have things on social media that shows a different kind of reality, that can create a strange kind of backlash. I mean, I saw a little bit of complaining from people who are unhappy with the US government's policy towards Ukraine. When there was a video of, I believe, a McDonald's in Kiev mm -hmm. where things looked relatively normal at the moment, they said, well, why are we sending all of this money over there if they're just hanging out in the McDonald's? And so when you normalize that visa flesh and blood human beings who are trying as best they can under incredibly traumatic and difficult circumstances to go about their lives, then it can somehow 
play into this narrative of, oh, look, you know, they're living it up, which is, of course, silly and absurd. But how do you strike that middle distance, as it were? How do you show the horrors of war, but in a way where people who haven't been there, who haven't perhaps experienced war, can nevertheless relate to the protagonists of the stories? Is this something you think through in your work? And do you have any experience of how it yeah. is that narrative means can actually help create that kind of empathy and a kind of imagination for what people are going through? Deeply, deeply, deeply. Right? I think about this all the time. And so it's something that I've put some effort into doing. I think you're right that people don't want to read constantly about suffering and trauma and deep personal problems. And of course, war involves a lot of that. You mentioned this issue with the McDonald's. I mean, we did a deep story into what it's like to understand how life goes on in key. The, the fact that you can get a Big Mac here is one thing, but that you have to realize that after folks eat their McNuggets, everyone heads home before curfew and they wait for you know, a likely bombardment in the city to start. More nights than not, there have been explosions and air alarms at two, three, four o'clock in the morning in Kyiv. It's one of the most difficult things to explain to people who are not in Ukraine right now, that the fact that you can get sushi in Kyiv, but also there's this low-level constant fear, this tension of imminent violence at any time. I really found the McDonald's controversy, the fact that there's a functioning and bustling McDonald's in Kiev to be a really interesting one, because I think that it touches on a deeper point here. The video was posted originally by someone who heads the Kiev School of Economics, and, and his point was, hey, Ukrainians are still trying to live their life, that they're resilient, and the city remains vibrant as kind of an FU to the Russians who are trying to destroy their way of life and their sense of normalcy. But as you point out, it was then seized upon by opponents of Ukraine or additional aid to Ukraine, to say, well, that looks like a pretty nice McDonald's to me. Now, reality kind of delivered a pretty striking comeback, because almost as soon as this controversy started, a number of caliber missiles were launched by Russia at the southern port city of Odessa, and it hit a residential complex and an educational institution and a business center, and would you know it, also a McDonald's and damaged and destroyed the outside of a McDonald's in Odessa. So, you know, to address the kind of ebb and flow of daily living in Ukraine is a major thing that I'm trying to do and, and try to put you there. And you're right, the negative side of things can get boring, which is why we are talking constantly about things like Ukrainian language, this issue of Russian versus Ukrainian language. Why are there so many Russian songs on the Ukrainian list of top hits right now? Can you speak Russian in Ukraine right now? Or how much social backlash will you get? We're talking about Ukrainian language, history, culture, cuisine. One of the things that I like to tell people about the most interesting fact about Ukraine that I've learned in the last year and a half is that I don't think that the national dish of Ukraine is borscht, actually. I think it properly is sushi, and no one is ready for that information, but that Ukrainians are obsessed with sushi, and that there's a really interesting geopolitical reason for this. It exploded in popularity after the Orange Revolution in 2004, and I think my theory on this is that it reflected Ukraine's desire to be more worldly, to embrace this sort of non-Russian components of the world, and to be closer to its allies in, in the West and elsewhere around the globe. 
So we're doing tons of stories that don't have to do merely with suffering. And we're trying to make it personal. And one of the things that I do with this publication is to be far more casual in my writing style, almost as a letter to the audience. You know, we talk about, for example, I, I love uh, Vietnamese noodles, pho, and have been on the hunt for a good bowl here in Ukraine for quite some time. And I take readers along for the ride there. There are so many different components of this war. So I'm glad you mentioned this McDonald's controversy and other ways to pique people's interest, because that's certainly what we're trying to do. How do you balance as a war correspondent and somebody who now leads a media organization trying to cover this conflict, two different instincts, which I think are both important and valid. One is that you're obviously doing values-driven journalism, but the reason why you're there is in good part that you think that the Ukrainian cause is just and that they're suffering a terrible violent attack from Russia and that you want to make sure that people hear the stories and continue to keep Ukraine in their minds and perhaps that you know their governments will therefore have a public support to actually give Ukraine the assistance it needs to defend itself against this attack. On the other hand, of course, you're you know a journalist who needs to look also at the darker aspects of a society or the things that are not working that well, both because one of the values is to be objective and to tell interesting stories, whatever political valence they may have, and, and in part because that may actually be necessary. That, for example, being forthright about some of the corruption that undoubtedly does exist in Ukraine, as of course it does probably even more severely in Russia, it may be necessary in order to put pressure on those parts of the Ukrainian state to actually perform better and to enhance the chances of Ukrainian victory. So how do you balance that? I mean, how do you feel about some of the evidence that there seems to be that some war photographers did ask some Ukrainian troops to cover up far-right symbols because they, you know, would complicate the narrative and, and look unfortunate in the photograph and so on? I mean, how do you go in giving an overall sense of the situation, which is in accordance with your good faith read that Ukraine is clearly the aggrieved party here and anybody decent will be on the side of Ukraine, which is something that I take it you believe and certainly I believe, but without falling into a temptation of making the story too simple, of covering up worrying or unfortunate facts that are also part of that picture. How do you think about accomplishing this balance? So let's start with the values issue. My philosophy on this and the philosophy of counteroffensive.news is that empathy and autocracy can't exist together, that they can't coexist. That if you tell human stories and you show the impact of oppression on people, the injustice of it screams out, demands some sort of other resolution. And that's true whether it's the obvious and explicit example of Russia's violence upon Ukrainian civilians and the ongoing full-scale invasion, but it's also true when the Ukrainian government misbehaves. When, for example, the Ukrainian government missteps, people are deeply affected by that, and we'll be telling those stories as well. The fact of the matter is that when you tell human stories, there's an obvious demand from people who are undergoing a difficult situation. There's an obvious call for a solution. I don't want to place the Russian atrocities on the same level as, you know, Ukrainian misdeeds, which, as you point out, obviously do exist. They're not equivalent in any way. 
But one thing as a Canadian-American journalist that I have in Ukraine is, is a special privilege, which is that I'm here as a media reporter and I'm able to speak more frankly and more truthfully and more honestly with my audience because my audience demands it and furthermore isn't as immersed as the Ukrainian audience in this war. I mean, the Ukrainian audience, quite rightfully and quite understandably, doesn't have a lot of interest or appetite for these sorts of investigative stories because right now their overarching goal is to see the war included in their favor. But we have an opportunity to write all sorts of stories on any topic that we like without, as far as I can tell, any sort of pushback from the Ukrainian government. And we will be telling those stories about what it's like to be in Ukraine today. Ukrainians also have this long time-honored tradition of complaining loudly about their own government and on the streets, something that Russian citizens don't have the same right to do. And it's worth pointing out that divergence as well. What is something that you've learned from being in the country and talking with lots of people and reporting these stories that you think still really is not obvious to reasonably well-informed people outside the country and around the world? What is it that you wish your friends and colleagues in the States would understand about Ukraine or would understand about what it is like to live in a country under this kind of assault that you find persistently people don't get? I think from the outside looking in, there's been a lot of complimentary coverage on President Zelensky. But if you talk to Ukrainians, this kind of follows from my previous point, that Ukrainians have this long tradition of complaining quite loudly and publicly about their own government. And if you talk to a lot of Ukrainians, you'll find a lot of dissent and a lot of criticism of the Ukrainian government itself. You know, I spoke to someone in Dnipro, which is in central Ukraine and has a large Russian-speaking population. And I spoke to one particular person who was a little bit illustrative of this phenomenon. He said, I didn't vote for Zelensky in the last election, but I've been really proud of the way he has conducted himself as the leader of the country, that he, you know, put his own life at risk and at great personal danger, stayed in Kiev in the early days of the war. And he's been a great advocate abroad and domestically for the Ukrainian military. He's been able to unify a lot of allies. That being said, though, I wouldn't vote for him next time. That seems to me like a pretty common perspective that I've gotten from a lot of Ukrainians. And, and um, when people say that, presumably they also explain why it is that they wouldn't vote for him next time. What are those points of criticism? Yeah, I mean, I think that if you look at where Zelensky's approval rating was before the war, it was in the toilet that Ukrainians before the full-scale invasion thought that he could not run a government well and wasn't effective as being president. During the war, I don't think that there are that many folks who are saying that he hasn't been able to be effective as a leader, as a moral voice. But those same criticisms about whether he can be a kind of day-to-day -day manager, not a moral figure, but someone who can run the machinery of government, those criticisms remain. It, it kind of reminds you a little bit of Churchill, who the instant World War II was over, British voters rejected him for re-election, didn't think that he would be a, an appropriate peacetime prime minister. I see that there's a real possibility of that happening in Ukraine, because folks still don't have trust in him 
in terms of the nuts and bolts of government. What do you think Ukrainian society would look like if the country managed to win this war in some kind of resounding way, or perhaps if eventually there's some kind of frozen conflict on somewhat favorable terms to Ukraine? Clearly, the country has very sizable population that has been striving for democracy for a long time, but wants to be integrated in the West. But clearly, it is also the kind of country that is struggling to maintain its democratic institutions and other kinds of contexts. When you look at neighboring countries in Central and Eastern Europe, when you look at other relatively young democracies uh, that do have a history of autocracy, that do have uh, political forces within the country that are not keen on democracy, that do have uh, significant problems of corruption, many of them have also struggled. Do you think it's too early to tell, or is there any kind of way of imagining what a peacetime uh, Ukrainian political system may end up looking like and where the fault lines lie? I mean, presumably, Zelensky would try to be re-elected and to stay in power under those circumstances. Do you think it's likely he would lose the election? What kind of candidate might be on the other end of that? I know that this must be, by nature, quite speculative today, but I'd be interested in hearing your sense from within the country of what Ukraine's you know, midterm political development might look like. I think it's too early to speculate about an election, given that, hey, martial law is still in place, and it's very likely that elections will be delayed. It's far too early, given that we don't know the nature of the end of the conflict, or can even really realistically see what that might look like exactly, to predict what would happen in Zelensky's political future. But I can answer your earlier question with a prediction, that question on what does a post-war Ukraine look like? I think that, with one exception, which I'll explain, that there will be a huge gold rush in Ukraine, that Ukraine has shown itself to be a population of entrepreneurial and resilient and highly educated people who are just desperate for the opportunity and infrastructure to join Europe, join the world economy as a leading innovator. And I think Western institutions and companies are just banging on the door, ready to invest in this country. And they've seen all the positive stories of Ukrainian resilience, and they want to be part of the story of Ukrainian recovery and this boom that I think is likely to happen. The exception to this is the issue of corruption, which you talk to any Ukrainian, they'll acknowledge it as an issue. If the courts can be trusted, then Western companies would be very happy to invest and build businesses here in Ukraine. The question is whether or not the courts can be trusted, whether there's an appropriate application of the rule of law, or whether there will be some sort of pay-to-play situation, which has existed in some cases in Ukraine in the past. And this is why I said earlier, you know, that there are a couple reasons why this war is being fought. Obviously, one is that Russia invaded, but the other one is that there are a lot of people who think that this war is being fought so that on the other end of it, Ukraine emerges as a less corrupt, more free society. And I think that you'll find that if there is a movement towards autocracy, if there is a kind of squeezing on the freedoms that Ukrainians have felt in the past, that they simply won't put, a young Ukrainian simply won't put up for. They've sacrificed so much and that the people who are still in this country are enduring daily threats of violence because they love the place they're in. That They simply won't sit still and take it. And there's already kind of I read in 
uh, Political Europe, a good story by uh, by Jamie Detmer, with folks speculating on what sort of active protest and demonstration might be necessary to restore the restrictions on democratic freedoms that are, let's acknowledge, are natural in any war, in any wartime setting, that there's already talk about the need or the possibility of another Maidan uprising in Ukraine if things don't go that way. Ukrainian Democrats and folks who are interested in a free Ukraine know what has worked for them in the past, and they're certainly not going to be shy about it in the future. They feel like their rights are under threat. Tim Mack, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.